Part sixteen of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Fabre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter forty four. Water. The water that we use every day is hardly ever pure. However clear it may be, it always contains certain foreign substances in solution, as is proved by the slight coating of earthly matter that forms little by little on the inside of our water bottles tarnishing the glass and lessening its transparency. "'That earthly coating is very hard to wash off,' remarked Marie. "'I remember one day I tried and tried to get it off with water alone, but it seemed to have become a part of the glass itself.' "'Yes, that coating sticks so fast, just because it is of stony matter, a veritable stone such as the mason uses for building our houses. It is not at all surprising, therefore, if mere washing with water fails to remove it, to make it let go its hold, it should be dissolved in an acid, vinegar, for example, or lemon juice. Pour a little vinegar into a carafe and shake it up until it has wet all the clouded part of the glass. You will soon see the stony coating dissolve, creating a little foam as it does so. When the acid has done its work, wash it off with water, and you will find that all the foreign matter comes away with it, leaving the glass once more as clear and transparent as ever. Then even the clearest water, Jules observed, water in which the eye can detect nothing, absolutely nothing, nevertheless contains dissolved stone, just as sweetened water contains sugar invisible to the eye, and when we drink a glass of water we drink with it a little of this stony matter. Who would ever suspect it? It is very fortunate, my dear boy, that we do thus drink a little of this dissolved stone. Our bodies, in order to grow and become strong, require a certain proportion of stony matter for the formation of our bones, which are to us just what its solid framework is to a house. This needed matter we cannot by any possibility create by ourselves. We must get it from our food and drink. Water, for its part, furnishes a good share, and if it does not contain the required mineral matter, we should remain puny and ailing, being unable to attain our natural size. Is there much of this dissolved stone in the water we drink? asked Emile. To be fit for drinking, water must contain a little, for the reason I have just explained. But when it contains too much, it is hard to digest and burdens the stomach. The right proportion is from one to two decigrams for a liter of water, or, in other words, about as much as you would take up between your thumb and forefinger. Any considerable excess makes the water heavy, as we say, because it weighs on the stomach. Certain waters are so rich in dissolved stony matter that they quickly encrust anything they touch. Such is the water of the celebrated spring of Saint-Alaire at Clermont-Ferrand. It is made to fall upon a heap of tree branches which break up the water and divide it into spray. This fine shower is allowed to fall on objects that it is desired to coat with an encrustation of stone, on birds' nests, baskets of fruit, bouquets of flowers, and foliage. A layer of stony matter is soon deposited by this mineralized dew, and the bird's nest, the basket of fruit, the bouquet are turned to stone, or, more exactly, they are overlaid with a coating of stone, so that one would say a sculptor's chisel had deftly cut these objects out of marble. Such water, needless to say, is unfit for drinking. "'I should think so,' cried Claire. "'It would pave the stomach with marble, which would not be very good for the digestion.' Never does the water such as we use, Uncle Paul continued, 
have anything like that superabundance of stony matter, though it often does contain enough to cause difficulty in certain domestic operations, especially laundry work. You must have noticed how the water in which clothes are washed with soap always turns more or less white. Perhaps you have even observed that the little flakes or clots of whitish matter are formed in the water and float about in it. Yes, I know what you mean, Marie hastened to reply. And when there are too many of those white clots, it is hard to get any suds. The soap is just wasted. Well, now you know that the white tinge and the floating particles are caused by the presence of dissolved stony substances. Perfectly pure water, distilled water, takes up soap without losing its clearness, or with very little loss. It does not turn white. It does not form flakes. To convince yourself of this, try a little rain-water some day for washing out a piece of linen, for rain-water is almost as pure as distilled water. You will see how easy it is and how the soap does its work without waste. There will be no white particles left in the water, though there will be plenty of lather, and no whitish tinge to the water under the foam, such as you commonly see in wash-tubs. When the water turns very white under the action of soap and shows abundant flakes, it is a sure sign of too much stony matter in the water. Laundry work then becomes difficult, and soap gives trouble about dissolving, dissipating itself in tiny clots without acting on the soiled linen. Such water is also bad for drinking, overburdening the stomach with its excess of mineral matter. The water found in regions rich in limestone is liable to this objection. "'I can see well enough,' said Emile, "'that a little stony substance in the water must be a good thing for us, and I also see how troublesome too much must be, the stomach would soon get tired of digesting stone. Finally, his uncle continued, hard water like that is unfit for certain culinary purposes, particularly for cooking vegetables such as green peas and chickpeas, the last named especially. The mineral matter in the water becomes incorporated with the vegetables, and then, no matter how long you boil them, they will not become soft. Yes, said Marie, I know how chickpeas act sometimes. After hours and hours of cooking, they are just as hard as at first, and will bound like marbles if you throw them on the floor. What prevents their softening, you say, is the stony matter dissolved in the water. That, and nothing else. Now, since all water contains more or less of this, we are often troubled about cooking the vegetables I have named. But there is a simple remedy that I recommend in all such cases. Drop a little pinch of potash into the water and the most obstinate beans or peas will cook to perfection, even the chickpea itself softening to a mush. "'Without getting any bad taste?' asked Marie. "'Without getting any bad taste, or anything else that need be feared, on condition, however, that the potash be used very sparingly, just a pinch, and no more. But there is another way to use it that is more readily at our command. Since potash is obtained from wood ashes, it is plain that wood ashes can here play the part of potash. In a small piece of cotton cloth folded two or three times, tie up a thimbleful of clean ashes, and drop this into the pot with your vegetables. The potash in the ashes will dissolve and permeate the water, while the earthy matter will be left in the cloth, which is taken out when the vegetables are done. By this means, however hard the water, you will get the better of the most refractory peas and beans, Uncle Paul is always finding some new use for wood ashes, remarked Claire, and now we see that they will even soften the hardest of chickpeas. Chapter 45 Water Continued 
Water may be clear, colorless, fresh, agreeable to the taste, excellent for washing and cooking, and nevertheless, with all these admirable qualities, dangerous to drink. This danger arises from microbes in the water, though nothing betrays their presence, neither smell nor taste, nor any lack of clearness, nor the least impairment of the water for household uses. Since certain kinds of these infinitesimal organisms cause serious maladies, we imperil our health by taking them into our bodies in our drink. Water, therefore, to be good to drink, should contain no microbes. One well may furnish water of irreproachable purity, while another may be more or less infected with microbes, and hence pernicious and dangerous, despite all appearances to the contrary. Where, then, are we to look for perfectly pure water, water that we may drink without thought of danger? It is furnished only by springs. Let us dwell for a moment on the origin of springs, and we shall then understand why spring water is pure. Rain, melting snow, the dampness of night fogs, soak into the ground, especially on mountain slopes, and the water thus absorbed over large expanses of surface sinks to a great depth, collects in little underground streamlets, makes its way through opposing soil and sand, also through the cracks in rocks, and comes to the surface again in some distant valley, welling up through a fissure and producing a spring. From its starting point to its destination, the water thus passes through a sort of filter of enormous thickness, kilometers thick in fact, and at a sufficient depth to be free from surface defilement. By passing through successive beds of clay, marl, sand, crumbling rock, and porous stone, the water gradually rids itself of its impurities and leaves them behind, so that on reappearing above ground it no longer contains any corpuscles even of the microscopic minuteness of microbe germs. Spring water is pure by virtue of the thorough filtering it has undergone, a filtering such as no means at our disposal could begin to achieve. Can we say as much for the purity of river water and brook water? Far from it. These streams, especially in the neighborhood of large cities, receive frightful quantities of foul matter. Into them empty sewers charged with the refuse from streets and dwellings. In their waters are washed the garments we have soiled and the foul linen that has served as bandages for sores. Their channels are choked with all sorts of decaying matter from many factories. It is therefore evident that river and brook, however clear their water, cannot furnish us with a drink that is free from suspicion. Microbes abound, and those of cholera, for example, may be among them, from the person of some victim to that disease, or from the linen used in his treatment. Not even a country brook is void of offense. Rainwater washes the tilled fields, soaks through the manure spread as fertilizer, and carries to the stream the harmful germs that breed in all decay. Well water, besides not always sufficiently aerated, is likewise subject to defilement. In the first place, owing to its slight depth, a well becomes charged with water from the upper layers of the soil, a filter not thick enough to arrest injurious germs. In the second place, wells in town are dug in ground that has become defiled to a considerable depth by the prolonged sojourn of man. Not far away are drains and sewers and other repositories of filth from which it is very difficult to safeguard the wells. In the country the danger is less, provided the well be covered so as not to admit any dead leaves or the dust raised by the wind, and provided especially that the well be at a distance from all stables, dung heaps, 
deposits of compost, and other sources of infection through infiltration. Mere taste and appearance make us reject for drinking purposes all water that repels by its odor, its taste, or its lack of clearness. But this is not enough. It is now established beyond doubt that certain diseases, especially typhoid fever and cholera, are propagated by water containing their microbes. Suspicious as we must at all times be of river water and well water, in periods of epidemic we should exclude them entirely from our use and have recourse to spring water alone. But not everyone can obtain spring water. What shall be done in such cases? The answer is simple. We have seen that the temperature of boiling water kills all living creatures. River water or well water can accordingly be rendered quite fit for all our uses on the express condition that it be first boiled. Freed of its noxious germs by heat, it is thenceforth harmless. Summing up these points in a couple of precepts of prime importance to our health, we may say, keep all wells and springs free from filth, and when cholera is prevalent, use no well water, or any water from river or brook, without first boiling it. Chapter 46. Vinegar. You will be surprised to hear, said Uncle Paul, that any sweetened substance will generate alcohol by a remarkable chemical change called fermentation, and that alcohol in its turn changes into vinegar. As sugar is the origin of alcohol, it is sugar, in reality, that makes vinegar. Here we see something generating its opposite, sweet giving birth to sour. The same thing happens, Marie observed, with milk or with a slice of melon. They both sooner or later lose their sweet taste and turn sour. Those are two good examples of substances which, at first sweet, turn sour as soon as decomposition sets in. But vinegar, such as is used in cooking, goes through a different process, for it comes not directly from sugar, but from alcohol. All alcoholic liquids are good for making vinegar. Nevertheless, wine makes the best and most highly valued. The very word vinegar shows you how the thing itself is made. Vinegar means nothing more nor less than sour wine, vin agra. Why, so it does, Claire exclaimed. I hadn't noticed it before. The two words fit together just right. Not a letter too many and not a letter too few. In wine, Uncle Paul resumed, it is the alcohol, and the alcohol alone, that turns sour. That is to say, you can't make good vinegar without good wine. The more generous the wine, or, in other words, the richer it is in alcohol, the stronger the vinegar. People often make a mistake on that point. They think that poor wine, the final drippings from the wine press, the rinsing of bottles and casks, will in course of time take on sufficient sourness. A great mistake. Such watery stuff cannot possibly yield what it does not possess. As soon as the small proportion of alcohol it contains has turned to vinegar, that is the end of it. No matter how long you wait, there will be no increase of sourness. The rule has no exceptions. To obtain good vinegar, use good wine. Wine rich in alcohol. But you haven't told us yet, said Jules, what must be done to change the wine into vinegar. That takes care of itself. Leave on the kitchen sideboard an uncorked bottle of wine, not quite full, and in a few days, especially in summer, the wine will turn to vinegar. On the express condition of its being exposed to the air, wine will turn sour of itself. 
and all the quicker when a warm temperature hastens the process of decomposition in the alcohol. That shows you at once the care necessary for keeping table wines and preventing their turning sour. If in bottles or demijohns, they must be tightly corked with good stoppers, since otherwise air will get in, and the wine will be in danger of souring. A cork is always more or less porous. The top is covered with sealing wax when the wine is to be kept a long time. In a word, the bottles are sealed. Then it's just to keep out the air, said Emile, that they seal the bottles with red, green, black, or any other colored sealing wax? Merely for that reason. Without this precaution, air might gradually get into the bottle, and when it was uncorked, instead of excellent old wine, you would have nothing but vinegar. You see, if you wish your wine to keep well, you must, above all, guard it from the air. A partly filled demijohn or cask, opened every day to draw out wine and then carefully recorked, soon goes sour, especially in summer. If the wine is not likely to be all used up for some time, the contents should be bottled and carefully corked. In that way the wine is in contact with the air only one bottle at a time, as it is called for, and so cannot turn sour provided it has been properly corked. Let us then accept it as a rule, that if wine is not to turn sour it must come in contact with the air as little as possible. If, on the contrary, we wish to change it into vinegar, we leave it exposed to air in uncorked or imperfectly corked vessels. Little by little, through the long-continued action of the air, its alcohol will turn sour. That is what happens to the remnants of wine left in the bottom of bottles and forgotten. Of all the seasonings used with our food, vinegar, next to salt, is the most prized. With its cool tart flavor and agreeable odor, it gives a relish to dishes that without it would be too insipid. Its use is not only a matter of taste, but of hygiene. For taken in moderation, it stimulates the work of the stomach and makes the digestion of food easier. Combined with oil, it is an indispensable seasoning for salad. Without it, this raw food would hardly be acceptable to the stomach. That is one of my favorite dishes, Jules declared, especially when it is made of spring lettuce. The vinegar makes it taste so good, pricking the tongue just enough and not too much. Vinegar is also used in the preparation of certain well-known condiments, capers, for example. Oh, how I like them, cried Emile. Those capers they sometimes put into stews. Where do they come from? I will tell you. In the extreme south of France, near the Mediterranean, there is cultivated a shrub called the caper bush. Its favorite haunts are rocky slopes and the fissures in old walls and rocks much exposed to the sun. Its branches are long and slender, armed with stout thorns. These branches bend over in a graceful green mass, and against the darker background of the foliage are set off by numerous large and sweet-smelling pink blossoms resembling those of the jasmine. Well, these blossoms, before they open, are capers. As little buds, they are gathered every morning, one by one, and pickled in vinegar of good quality. That is all that is done to them, so when Emile smacks his lips over the caper sauce, he is eating nothing more nor less than so many flower buds. I shall like them the better for knowing they are flowers, the boy declared. In like manner, gherkins are pickled in vinegar. They grow on a vine much like the pumpkin vine. Similar treatment, too, is given to pimentos, sometimes called allspice on account of their spicy taste, which becomes unbearably strong when the fruit is ripe and coral red. 
I will remind you that all pickling with vinegar should be done in vessels not glazed on the inside with lead. I have already told you that ordinary pottery is glazed with a preparation that contains lead. Strong vinegar might in the long run dissolve this glaze, and thus acquire harmful qualities. Keep your capers, pimentos, and gherkins in glass vessels, or at least in pots that are not glazed inside. In conclusion I will tell you that vinegar has the property of making meat tender. To ensure tenderness in a piece of beef it is sprinkled several days in advance with a little vinegar to which has been added salt, pepper, garlic, onions, and other seasoning, according to the taste of each person. In this mixture, however many of these ingredients there may be, vinegar plays the chief part. This process is called sousing the meat. Footnote. It is a little strange that although excellent cider is produced in France, especially in Normandy, it seems not to be used for making vinegar. Translator's Note. End of Part 16